Well, to this day, there is only one athletic contest of my youth that still really bugs me. Uh, my junior year, we, uh, we made it to the playoffs, had an unbelievable come-from-behind wind upset the third-ranked third team, team in state, made it to the next round, and, and ultimately we lost. Now, here's why it bugs me. It's not because we lost. I don't, I don't like losing, but that's part of playing a game. There's only one or two options. You're either going to win or lose, but it's how we lost. In a game that in the middle of the third quarter, we were winning by almost two touchdowns, I listened as my teammates in the huddle were actively talking about how we can't beat this team. Well, we are, but we can't beat this team. And ultimately, we lost because most of our team quit. Now, I learned an important lesson the next day. The next day, I went to the gym to do my after, you know, the lift routine that I would do after playing to kind of work out the soreness. And I walked in, and the guy behind the counter who I'd gotten to know didn't say, didn't, didn't say hi, didn't say hi. He said, man, you must have lost last night. I'm so sorry. I said, what? And he said, dude, it is all over your face. You look horrible. And I learned an important lesson. That our faces, our faces say a lot. They say a lot about what's going on inside of us and who we are. They say a lot about where we're looking what we're seeking, what we're paying attention to, where we're at. There is something interesting that is revealed through our faces, and it, it comes out in an interesting way as we continue to work through the book of Daniel. So I invite you, if you would, turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to pick up in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, I invite you to use the pew Bible in front of you. The page numbers will be on the screen. Daniel chapter 9 is, is the third of a series of, of, of ultimately visions and encounters with the Lord that Daniel writes about in the second half of the book. But this one's going to be a little different than the last several weeks, so, so follow with me. Daniel 9.1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Midian descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. Now, let's stop there for a second, give you some context. It says, in the first year of Darius, the king who was given the kingdom over the Chaldeans, that being Babylon, this is going to take place 12 years after chapter 8. So chapter 8, the vision of the, the ram and the goat and the little horn and, and all, chapter 8, that was 12 years ago. 12 years has gone by, not only that, but the events of Daniel chapter 5 where the handwriting on the wall appears and in one night Babylon falls, that has occurred. Persia is now the ruling kingdom, and it's in the first year of Darius, who we know from is the ruler in Daniel chapter 6 when Daniel is, is put in the lion's den, Darius is now in charge. And in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now here's, here's important context for us to understand. In what, what has seemed like maybe chaos to everyone else as, as Babylon falls in a night and Persia comes in, and what does this mean to Daniel? It's no surprise because he's been walking on the surety of the, the Word of the Lord. He knows that God is sovereign and involved and in, in shaping and moving human affairs towards appointed ends. And, and in the midst of this, we find Daniel faithfully in the Word of God. 
reading a written copy of the same book of Jeremiah you and I have today. And as he's reading through Jeremiah, he is, he is reminded of, of, of Jeremiah's prophecy that the people of Israel would be in exile for 70 years. Now, give you some background on that. Jeremiah chapter 25, uh, God is speaking through Jeremiah and says to the people, I'm going to give you a summary of it. For 23 years, Israel... I have sent you prophets, I have called you to repentance, I have called you to give up your idols, to give up your child sacrifice, to give up your sexual immorality, to give up your defrauding each other in uh, financial uh, entanglement. I've called you to repentance for 23 years. And if at any point you had responded, I would restore you to the land, the promised land, the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land that God promised the people of Israel would be their land as he would be their God. At any point you would have repented, I would have restored you to the land, but you have not. And so what he says is, so I am sending Babylon to come and conquer you. They are going to take you into exile for 70 years. And then after 70 years, I will judge Babylon's wickedness. Now, fast forward. That's Jeremiah 25. Babylon comes in. They take over, they take over uh, Judah, and the, and the people of God take over Israel, and they begin three different waves of attack and deportation. And somewhere in there, you've got a group of, of God's people, a group of Jews living in Babylon, and they are really mad about it. And thus, Jeremiah writes Jeremiah 29. And in Jeremiah 29, he's going to tell the people, you're, you're, you're busy listening to false prophets who are telling you that don't, don't worry, God's about to show up, God's about to, God's about to take out Babylon. And he says, stop listening to the false prophets. Instead, stop praying for Babylon's judgment. Instead, seek their good and get real comfortable because you're staying here for 70 years. Humble yourself and recognize why you're here. You're here because of the sinfulness of of your ways and the stubbornness and pride of your own heart and your refusal to repent, get real comfy. Go ahead and build yourself houses, make yourself gardens, marry your kids off in marriage, and get real comfortable because you're going to be here for 70 years. And then he says, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I'll visit you. I'll fulfill my good word to you. I will bring you back to this place. Why? Because I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Because then you will call upon me and you will come and pray to me. I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And so here's Daniel reading these passages. And, and all of a sudden, Daniel here in about the years about 538 B.C. is going, wait a minute. I was part of the first group taken 67 years ago. God said it lasts for 70 years. God's word holds true. Something's about to change. So look at what Daniel's response is as he's reading the word and he realizes this. It says, so I gave my attention, or literally, I set my face to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Here's what he does. When he reads the word, as he's reading the word and recognizes the truth of, of what it holds, it it doesn't drive him to some kind of fatalistic complacency. Okay, God, well, 70 years are about to be up. Cool, we'll just sit back and wait for you. No, he recognizes, oh my goodness, 70 years, it's about to be, God, God's about to begin moving, and it drives him, the Word of God, the promises of God, the sovereignty of God drives him to action. 
and he sets his face. He binds out all distractions. He locks his face to seek the Lord. And it says in, in fasting, sackcloth, ashes, this refers to taking extreme and serious measures to make sure to remove all distraction, to seek the Lord. It, it speaks of measures placing on of itchy material and spreading on of ashes, of displaying lament. Daniel is going to leave nothing. Daniel is going to push out anything that would distract him, and he will leave nothing to chance. He wants to seek the Lord, to know what the Lord is doing, and, and to make sure the Lord hears what he prays. And here's what he prays. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those that love him and keeps his commandments. Right off the bat, he begins to pray. And at the beginning of his prayer, what he does is he worships. He prays in adoration of God. He begins to declare the greatness of God. God, you are great. You are beyond. You are above. You are awesome, meaning you are, you are full of wonder and, and you bring awe and are deserving of reverence. You keep, you carry through the words of your covenant. You are loving kindness. This word that speaks to one's loyalty, one's covenant faithfulness to love and, and be good and, and care for and fulfill one's word to those that they have bound themselves together with in a covenant. We translate it loving kindness, mercy, compassion, steadfast love. He speaks about the character of God and he adores God. He establishes God, this is who you are. And interestingly enough, and the way he describes God is, is very much driven out of what's recorded by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 34, where God reveals himself as one who is full of loving kindness and great in mercy and compassion. He says, God, this is who you are. And then he says, and this is what we've done. We've acted sinfully. We've committed iniquity. We've acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Here's what he says. He says, God, you're great. You are, you are worthy of reverence and awe and, and wonder. You are mighty. You are full of loyal covenant faithfulness in your love and in your mercies and compassion. And, and we, your people, we have been wicked. We have been sinful. We have actively chosen to do what you've told us not to do. We have openly rebelled. We've rejected your word, and we've rejected your prophets. It says in 2 Chronicles 36, God, it says that, says that the Lord their God, their Father, sent word to them again and again by his messengers. Why? Because God had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. And they despised his words, they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Here's what Daniel says. He says, Lord, this is who you are, but this is what we've done. His response to the Lord, he's in prayer, he's, he's worshipped through adoration, now he worships through confession. Now here's what's interesting about Daniel's confession here. Daniel's not actually guilty of any of the things he's confessing. But Daniel is so driven in his relationship with the Lord, he is so broken by the sin of his own people that he goes before the Lord. We see this pattern over and over again in Scripture. Nehemiah, 
Nehemiah chapter 1 confesses the sin of the people, not because he's deeply guilty by it, but because there seems to be this, this reality that, that as, as, as we grow right, more, more and more righteous and, and more and more uh, deep in, in, the, in our relationship with God, we are more broken, not only by our own sin, but by the sin of those with whom we are apart. And so he goes and he confesses, Lord, this is who you are. This is what we've done. And then he's going to move in and he's going, in, in, in light of that, Lord, you're right and we're wrong. Look what he says. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, or literally, shame of face. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away and all the countries to which you've driven them because of their unfaithful deeds they've committed against you, open shame, shame of face belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, why we sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings, which He set before us through His servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which was written in the law of God, the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against Him. Thus He has confirmed His words which He has spoken against us, against our rulers who ruled us, to bring us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done to Jerusalem. Here's what He said. He said, You alone, O Lord, are righteous. You alone are righteous. You alone are the one who is right, who, is, who, who is acts in complete conformity with your righteous, correct, pure standard. He says, We're the ones who have whose faces, you want to look on our faces and see what they reflect? They don't reflect joy. They don't reflect glory. They reflect shame because we defied you. We defied your word. You who are compassionate, who are filled with a deep internal desire and motivation to act, to, to, to save those who are suffering, even those who are suffering by their own sin, you who are, are forgiving, who would wipe out, we have, you're this, but we rejected and not only that, but where we find ourselves in exile is exactly where you who are faithful to your word said we would be. You see, if you rewind the clock and you go read Leviticus chapter 25, if you go back and read Moses' final words there in Deuteronomy, God is really clear to the people of Israel. I am your God. You will be my people. Here's the relationship we're in. This is what you expect of me. This is what I expect of you. And if you walk in sin and you harden your hearts, and you deafen your ears, and you refuse to repent, what I'm going to do is I'm going to remove you from the land into exile. God told him up front what he would do, and God did it. Because God is right, Israel was wrong, and God is faithful to his word, and Israel is powerless to stop what God would do. God has literally kept watch over His Word. He knows what He's written. He's kept watch over it to do it. And, and so here's the reality. This is, if you want to say, this is an example of worship through repentance, for that's what repentance is. Repentance means my face is set on walking this way towards something wrong, and repentance is when I acknowledge this is wrong, I am wrong, and I turn back my face looking at God, and I acknowledge, God, you are right, I am wrong, and I'm turning back to you. That's literally what repentance is. 
He's worshiping through repentance, but notice how bad the plight is. You go, wow, all of this is really bad. He's apologizing for past stuff. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. As it is written in the law of Moses, this calamity wherein our people were, were enslaved and paying taxes, where Babylon came in and, and took boys and girls, sons and daughters, and ripped them away from their families into exile, where later on they would come back and besiege the city and take 60,000 into exile, where later on they would besiege the city for, for a whole year. They would cut off the water and food supply. There would be bodily waste rotting in the street. There would be people dying of starvation. There would be even cannibalism. When he says this calamity, we're not talking about one bad day. We're talking about a horrific human experience that the people of God lived through and now find themselves in exile experiencing the full weight of God's discipline upon their sin. They've experienced all of this, and look at what Daniel says, and you'll understand now why it's driving his prayer. Yet we have not sought the favor of our Lord. Literally, we have not sought to soften the face of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Here's what he says. He says, Lord, we've gone through all of this. You're right and we're wrong. And here's the problem. We may not be sacrificing to the idols of Baal anymore as we're out here in Babylon, but we haven't actually repented of the real issue of sin in our hearts. We still don't want to acknowledge that we don't want to accept who you are for who you say you are at your word and what that means for our lives. We still want you our way, and we haven't repented, Lord. Daniel recognizes 67 years into exile, they may not be bowing down to Canaanite gods anymore, but the actual issue of sin and repentance has not changed in spite of all the people have seen. It says, therefore, the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it for us. The Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds with which he has done. The problem is we have not obeyed his voice. And having worshiped through adoration, having worshiped through confession, having worshiped through repentance, look what he now does in his petition. And now, O Lord, who has brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, you've made a name for yourself as it is in this day. We have sinned. We have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn from your holy city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of the sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on the desolate, your desolate sanctuary. Oh my God, incline your ears to hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplication before you on account of any merit of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action. For your sake, O oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. He's adored God. He's confessed the sin of his people. He's repented. 
And now he petitions, Lord, in light of who you are, in light of the fact that you are righteous, that you are just, in light of the fact that you are completely and totally always true to your character, you never operate outside of who you are. You don't have bad days or days where you're just off. You are who you are and you always act in complete accordance with who you are because you are righteous. No, we don't deserve it, and I'm not coming here asking because we've measured up, because we've earned it. I'm not. I'm coming here asking on no other basis than the sheer goodness of who you are, than the fact that, God, in your basic disposition, you, you, are, you look towards humanity with love and compassion, that deep-seated, we've mentioned it a minute ago, that deep-seated desire It's pictured in the Word as being in your inner bowels, this deep-seated inner desire that looks out at another suffering and is moved with a sympathy and compassion to rescue them. Said, God, in light of this, I'm asking that you would hear, that you would move, that, that rather than you look towards us with discipline, that you would look towards us with grace and glory, that you would restore us to the land. Now, we're going to stop there. There's a whole lot more coming next week. This is only part one. But there is so much in Daniel's prayer that we have to understand, church family, because here, here Daniel finds himself in a position where he is in exile. He's, he's over 80 years of age. He recognizes the Word of God is quickly moving, and, and things are about to move to fruition, and the people are completely unprepared. And he's not driven to despair, but like we've seen Daniel time and time again, he is driven in dependence and humility down on his knees to seek the Lord. Why? Because our God is an awesome and good God. And despite of our sinfulness and even the waywardness of his own people, the Lord is righteous in all his deeds and he is faithful to his every word. Understand, church family, what he drives at. He he makes it clear in the passage that our God is an awesome and good God. Our God is worthy of awe. He is deserving of reverence. He is, if we were to see him and put it this way, when when you walk out and you see a beautiful picture, a beautiful scenery, there is an awe that comes over. If you and I were to behold the glory of God, there would in one sense be a terror at realizing that we aren't God and He is, but there would also be for the child of God a sense of wonder and awe, respect of beauty at the brilliance of God. He is a great and awesome God. And Daniel's clear. He's full of compassion. His, His mercies do not fail, but they renew each morning. He's gracious and forgiving. His disposition towards humankind is one that desires to seek and to save out of His own goodness, not our worthiness. And for some in the room who face despair and discouragement today, you simply just need to remember that if you are in Christ, the God you have a relationship with is an awesome and great God who looks towards you with compassion. We see this truth of who God is. We see the truth of who we are, that we as human beings are sinful. Humans are born sinners by nature. We sin because we are sin. We do what we are. We commit sin and thought and action. It says that as sinners, we're born in rebellion, separated outside of a relationship with God. We're not born sitting at the table looking in God's face in fellowship. No, we're born chained to the ground in sin, staring down at our own iniquity, unable, dead, unable, dead in our trespasses, unable to wake ourselves up, unable to get ourselves off the ground, unable 
to jump across the eternal chasm to sit in fellowship with God. It's what it means that we are sinners. It says all have sinned. None is, no, there is no exception. And the right just wages for sin, the right just due is death. And the issue of our sin is not one of ignorance, for God has established truths about Himself generally in creation that some, if we were truly desirous, we might pay attention and start to strive up and seek, but we don't pay attention because we're broken in sin. Now, there's a solution for that. We're going to see that especially next week. We can't, wait. we can't give ourselves life. We're dead. We're chained. We need someone to rescue us, and someone came to rescue us. His name is Jesus Christ. He lived the life we failed to live. He died the death we rightfully deserve. He rose from the grave alive forevermore, having conquered the child of sin, death. And he offers salvation to any man, woman, boy, or girl who upon, real, who upon being convicted and recognizing, yep, Lord, you're right, I am in fact this dead sinner, and in faith I am turning to you, and I'm going to trust that you are who you are, that you did what you said you did, and I recognize that I need you to be my Lord and Savior. When you respond in repentance and faith, then by the sheer grace of God, He saves you, reconciles you, gets you up out of that death. He places you not just into His household as a servant, but He seats you at His own table on Christ as a son or daughter adopted forevermore. Amen. Now, here's also the reality. Those of us for whom that has happened, Christian. But even we as Christians living in this world, though we're redeemed, though we're made new, though we've been given a new nature, we're not exempt from temptation and succumbing to it. Except when we fall into sin, it's certainly not out of ignorance and it's not due to our nature. It's, an, it's out of willful disobedience. Like Israel, we know the truth, but we reject it. We hear the Lord's voice, we can read His Word, but we choose deafness. We sense the Spirit's conviction, but we harden our hearts. And in spite of both the sinful brokenness of humanity and even for us as believers, how we can fall into sin, what we find is that our God is righteous in all His deeds. Amen. In all of His actions and ways to us, He is perfect. He is never wrong. God is never harsh, nor is He ever soft. He is simply right. We may not always understand what He does. And certainly when we're in sin, we may not always like what He does. But our opinion and our standards of what is rightness, righteousness, according to God, are like filthy rags compared to His righteousness and are irrelevant. He is right, and this is good, by the way. Because if God is not righteous, then He cannot be both just and justifier. Do you notice that Daniel places his petition for restoration upon the righteousness of God? O oh Lord, in accordance with your righteous acts, it is the righteousness of God that both condemns our sin, but it is also the righteousness of God that took him who knew no sin to become our sin, that we who trust him in faith might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. God is righteousness means he is right and we are wrong and that is good. He is righteous. His exile and discipline on Israel was righteous and just, not harsh. God's discipline in our lives as His, as his children will always seem harsh and unfair when we are unrepentant. 
But to the repentant heart, it will never seem harsh or unfair. It will seem loving and gracious to break us of our pride and deafness and restore us to fellowship. Because, see, when we're sitting in Christ, we can turn our face and get distracted by the sin on the ground. We're still in relationship with God. We're still seated at His table. But our fellowship is broken because our face has turned. Oh, the good grace of God to in love discipline us that our face would go back to Him. This is how God moves in the life of of His children. He is righteous. He's not just righteous, but He's faithful to His every word. How one author said it, what Scripture says is what God says, and what God says happens, period. End of discussion. He's faithful to His character as perfectly and finally revealed in Jesus Christ and inerrantly recorded in His written word by the Holy Spirit. It means God never, loves to, never fails to love. He never fails to supply grace. He doesn't hesitate to protect and preserve. Even through discipline, He doesn't fail in His patience. He doesn't fail to judge. He is faithful to His Word and to who His Word reveals Him to be. Amen. He is faithful to His covenant that He has enacted. The Israelites were under the old covenant. You and I, church family, we read the passage earlier from Ezekiel. We're in the new covenant. The old covenant couldn't couldn't save us. It just could show us we needed saving. The new covenant not only shows us we need saving, but it saves us, transforms us completely from the inside out. And in the new covenant, God God covenants to do things. He covenants to save us, which means He justifies us. He redeems us, buys us out of sin off that block. He reconciles us, restores us to a right relationship with God where we can look each other face to face. He regenerates us, transforms us inside out, and makes us new. The old is gone, the new has come. He sanctifies us, meaning He grows us. He disciplines us, meaning He both corrects and trains us. All of this to conform us, to make us look like Jesus. He not only justifies and sanctifies us, but He will glorify us, which means He sustains us through all the turmoil and trials of this life, which means He preserves us through all the dangers and snares to the end, which means ultimately this, He finishes what He starts. And He who started a good work in you, brother and sister, is going to finish it because He is faithful to His every word. He was faithful to call Israel to repentance. He was faithful to break Israel and send them into exile. He was faithful to judge Babylon's wickedness, and he was faithful to take Israel back to the land. Church family, he's faithful to convict us we're sinners. He's faithful to save us when we cry out. He's faithful in our lives, brothers and sisters, to convict us of sin, to conform us into his image. He is faithful to his word, but he doesn't ever promise to make us respond. He he calls us to respond. So when we understand and we look at what Daniel says, that our God is is great and good in character, and despite of the fact that we are born sinners by nature, and even for us as redeemed and regenerate believers, we still possess the ability to fall. God is still righteous in all His deeds and faithful to His every word. When we understand this, there's a response on our part. There's a response on our part. What we must do is we must humble ourselves and set ourselves to seek Him. And specifically in this passage, through prayer, as we worship Him, as we confess our sin, as we repent of our sin, as we petition for His good will on the basis of His good pleasure, that we might know His good favor. 
We must humble ourselves. What do we mean by humble ourselves? Let me put really simple, church family. It means we seek Him recognizing He's God and we're not. That it's about Him and not about us. There should be, when, we, when you think about fasting and sackcloth and ashes, certainly we're still called to fast and there's a time to, to, to fast. But, but simply put, if you want to understand what Daniel's doing here is he's just seeking God in all seriousness. Is there a seriousness to how we recognize God is God and we're not? Listen, humble people, proud people don't seek the Lord. Proud people don't pray because they don't need help. Proud people don't confess because they didn't do wrong. Proud people don't repent because they're right. Only the humble seek and ask and worship and confess and repent and petition. We've got to humble ourselves to seek, to literally set our face. There has to be a, a resolution in our lives to pursue one aim, one goal at the expense of all other distraction. And can I just say, church family, we live in a day and age where it's popular to be a seeker. But God didn't call us simply to just seek. We're not called to just go on a journey to some place. It's not about a destination. It's about the journey. No, church family. Jesus said, keep on asking so you will receive. Keep on seeking so you will find. Keep on knocking so it will be open. Listen, no one pays attention to an adventurer who never gets, gets the, uh, the artifact. You don't go see Indiana Jones because he, he spends the whole two hours to come up with nothing. We're not just out there seeking. We, we are seeking with a direct and deliberate aim to seek the fellowship and communion and the will of God himself. And what a good news, church family. God desires and delights to be found. Not only that, but he actually promises to be found by the hearts that will truly seek him. Oh, what a joy. You and I can walk out of here today. We, we can right now reposture our heart in humility to go, Lord, I'm going to seek you. And we can do it with confidence because he says he'll be found. And if you're in Christ, it's not as if you've got to look very far because God himself lives within you. He's never left. We've got to humble ourselves and seek him in prayer. And then interesting, Daniel probably knows the words of 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn, repent of their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Church family, we have to remember as we live in, 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 in times that are tumultuous that are chaotic, whether it be in our own personal lives or around the world, prayer matters. And we are to pray in light of His Word. It is the Word of God driving Daniel's prayer. Time does not permit, but there are so many cross-references where you can tell that Daniel's prayer is not just words he came up with, but he is praying other parts of Scripture. The Word is driving his prayer life. Perhaps many of us struggle to pray because we don't know the Word. Maybe we fail to approach God because we fail to hold fast to the Word. Daniel knows the Word. He knows God's promise, and it drives him to pray. As one, one wrote, exiled, captive in a godless land and moving rapidly to the end of his life, he still had great hope for his people knowing the sure and certain promises of the Word of God. Confidence in the promise of God did not move Daniel to complacency. Instead, it drove him to action and down to his knees. Church family, our God is sovereign. He will fulfill His will. And He desires to do so with our obedience. 
So we have to respond to the truth of His sovereignty, of His control with with action. His will demands prayer. We must be people who pray. The prayer of a righteous man affecteth much. And as we pray, we worship Him. We, We proclaim, we praise Him for who He is. By the way, it'll be much easier to praise God for who He is if you know what He says about who He is. Because sometimes you and I are not going to feel who he is. Even in my life as pastor, you better believe there are days I don't feel loved by God. But his word says he loves me, and his word says his love is most perfectly revealed in the cross. So how do I pray in that moment? I pray by remembering what his word says. The word drives. I worship him. We worship in prayer. We proclaim. We praise who He is by meditating on who He is we worship. We confess. Church family, we confess our sin. Do you realize the church is the only body on earth that confesses sin? No one else confesses sin because no one else thinks they have sin to confess before a righteous and just God. And where the confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. We must confess our sin personally. We must confess our sin corporately, if there's sin corporately for us to confess as people of God and understand past sin that we simply ignore but have never confessed and repented of doesn't go away. Israel has been through the harshest discipline for sin a nation could know, and she still didn't get it. Yes, she no longer bowed down to the idols of Baal, but she still did not address the true idolatry of her heart where she worships her own will and agenda for God rather than who God is. And by the way, it's why. They would go back to the land. They would have access to the Scriptures and all the prophecies we see. And Just over 500 years after Daniel's time, the Messiah would step forward into their place and they would all reject him. Church family, we better all be humble. Daniel's one of only two major figures in the Old Testament that we don't see any sin in his life and what's written about him. Yet in the very next verse, we'll start with next week, it says he was confessing not only his people's sin, but his own personal sin. There is not one of us in this room who is above sinning. And there's not one of us in this room who's above having sin in our life that we just have thought, well, it's out of sight, out of mind. God must not care. Let's just move on. Can I encourage you today, if there's sin in your past that you've never confessed and repented to the Lord, today's the day to do it. Today's the day to remove that elephant that's sitting in the table of sitting on God's table and interrupting your fellowship face-to-face with God. We have to confess our sin. And the more we grow in Christ-likeness, the passage I read as we opened worship today, God's given us a new spirit, put His spirit within us. The end of that passage says one of the results of all of that is that we actually mourn our sin. That the more and more we grow to be like Christ, the more we will mourn our sin, the more we will willingly go, oh Lord, this is off. I confess this to you. And I, and, I, and I rest in the glory of the fact that when you forgave me in Christ, you forgave me everything I did, am doing, and will do. And so I acknowledge I'm wrong and you're right. Listen, church family, we've got to understand this personally and corporately. I'm sure like, you, like me, many of you have heard is this, what's going on in society? God's judgment on America. And I think that can cause us to dangerously miss the point. 
because it's really easy to look at and see, look at how pagan our world is. God's got to bring judgment. Could it be that's what's happening in our society is not God's judgment on America, but God's judgment on the American church for places we've been proud and refused to humble ourselves and seek Him? Could it be that our culture is more reflective of the state of our churches and the lack of light we produce than our churches are reflective of our culture. By the way, you want to know why Israel was in, in exile for 70 years? Because, see, there was a part of God's covenant with them where God told them, every seven years, you're going to let the land rest. It's good stewardship for the land. It's going to restore the land. And every seven years, it's going to remind you that though I call you to work hard, your work is not what provides for yourself. It's me who provides for you. And after every 49th year of rest, you're going to have a 50th year of Jubilee. Did you know Israel never honored it? They missed it 70 times. And so according to Chronicles, the reason that the number 70 is because God is true to His Word. He was going to give the land the 70 years of rest Israel never gave to it. And church family, I fear in our churches today, I fear in our lives today, we don't really realize we are dependent upon Him for everything. So I don't know how many years of rest we've missed in dependence upon Him in our lives personally or our lives as the church, but if we have, it's time to confess and repent and turn around to Him. And as we do this, we petition for His will, church family. We don't pray our wish list. We pray, look at Daniel. Daniel's not praying his wish list. Daniel's not even going to get to go back to the promised land. He's praying for God's will. He's praying for God's restoration. He's, he's praying for God's purpose in the lives of his people. He's praying for God's glory to be seen. He's praying for God's will to be done in God's power for his glory. And this is so too how we must pray for our lives, for the lives of our children, for the lives of our family and friends, for the lives of our church, for the lives of each other. We humble ourselves and seek him in prayer, praying for his good will based on his good character. Church family, when you, when you are a child of God, you do not pray based on how worthy you are or are not walking because we're unworthy. You don't pray on the merit of how faithful you've been or not been. Do you notice, you know, specifically what Daniel says, we are not presenting our prayer on account of any merit of our own, but on who you are. Church family, when we're confident of who God is on the basis of who He says, not only will it cause us to be humble and seek Him in prayer, but it will make us, as we pray, pray with confidence because we're not praying on the shaky soil of the fruit of our lives. We're praying on the steady rock of the unchanging eternal God. Amen. And we do all of this for the favor of His presence. There's this interesting interplay through here. I've tried to highlight it, and it's why I gave you the weird story about faces earlier. The idea is that the face of God represents God's presence. Now, not God's presence in the sense of somehow God's absent. God's not absent anywhere, otherwise He's not God. What we mean by His presence is when the way that we experience and know and and, and and encounter His presence and are gripped by the fact that when we're in here worshiping, we should be encountering His presence, His presence that shakes walls and rends the heavens and parts seas and pours down fire and walks out of the grave victorious. Church family, we desperately need the presence of God in our lives individually and our lives corporately. We need His favor to rest upon and guide us. 
We need to turn our faces and set them to seek his presence. The truth is, in many ways, in our churches, we come in and we can worship and we can leave and never have encountered the overwhelming and almighty presence of God because we do all we... What, what does God need to do to show up today? We got the music. We got the sermon. We got the announcement video. We got, what, is, what do we need God for? And so we reconcile God to an honored box, whether in the church or whether in our lives, and we go, God, let us perform for you. God doesn't want us to perform with him. God wants us to fellowship with him. We need the presence of God, church family. We desperately need the face of God to shine upon our lives and our churches, to live in an awareness and a, in, in a, uh, an awareness and a, and a grip of the power of God's presence. Oh, church family, how God might be waiting for us, his people, to humble ourselves today and seek his face. How he might be waiting to hear our humble cries of confession and repentance for our misdeeds so his healing waters might flood over us. How God might be waiting for his people to respond in order to truly heal the world. As Ian Bounce said, God shapes the world by prayer. The more praying there is in the world, the better the world will be, the mightier the forces against evil. But church family, we have to ask ourselves the question today, what face are we wearing? One of death because we are in bondage and dead to our sin that we were born into. We don't know Jesus Christ. Or maybe we know Jesus Christ, but our face today is one of shame because there's disfellowship in our relationship with God. Or are we wearing a face today that, like Moses, meets with God face to face, and having met with God face to face in his presence, our face radiates the glory of God to all who see. What face are we wearing, and whose face are we seeking? Are we seeking the deceptive face of the world and its false promises? Are we seeking the inglorious face of our own selves, or are we serious in our pursuit in humility to seek the glorious face of our God? Oh, may it be. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you. We acknowledge we need you. We acknowledge that we live in a culture that, that without realizing it, Lord, on one hand, you call us to hard work. You do not call us to work as if everything depends upon us. That's when pride creeps in. And so, Lord, we look to you today. You know how we need to respond. I don't. But Lord, how each and every one of us needs to respond. May we be not just responsive in this time of invitation. But may we be responsive, Lord, as we go out of this place. As we go grab lunch, may our faces radiate with the glory of your presence. As we go to the workroom tomorrow, as we go home and try to deal with waking up kids tomorrow morning, may our face radiate with the glory of your presence. Lord, we confess it is far too easy to allow distraction, temptation, busyness, to keep our face looking other places than you. So, Lord, we look to you in this time. It's in your name I pray.